and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. Now, on today's episode, we're going to head over to the church for our new organist job. We're going to go head over to the, uh, you know, dress shop to get some new dresses. But also, we're going to, like, also drive over to that weird pavilion that, like, we can't stop looking at because... You know, I don't know. It's just like so enticing. But anyway, besides all of that, we're going to be covering today 1962's Carnival of Souls. Now, my history with this film is, you know, this is a reach watch for me. Okay. Uh, and I hadn't really seen it before. I hadn't really even heard of it, to be honest with you. And so I was like, you know, all right, let me go watch this with my little shutter subscription. Right. Like, why not? And so I watched it and I loved so much about it. And it's so great. So influential to the horror genre. And I, everything about it is just wonderful. So that's why I couldn't just do this with myself, okay? I needed to bring a guest with me today uh, because this movie is just, there's so much to it. And I'm thankful to have also found somebody who, you know, knows a lot about this movie and we're going to, you know, shoot the shit about all of it and talk to you like we normally do. So he is an arts administrator. He is a professor. He is uh, working to try to be one of the youngest, if not the youngest, host for TCM, Turner Classic Movies. And also he's been on uh, Friends of the Pod, Movies That Made Us Gay, a total of six times. I was just talking about this off air. But please welcome to the podcast, Jackson Cooper. Hello, Jackson. How are you doing today? Hi. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. It's not like we weren't just literally talking for like a yeah. whole like half hour before this, but <laughs> that's fine. We didn't totally have to fine. air any of that. All good. But, all good. The yeah. audience just came in the building. So welcome audience. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you all exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> now I mentioned a little bit about my, you know, history. Like I said, this is a recent watch for me. I think I watched this for the first time in um, last year, really. And mm-hmm. I said how much I loved it. But Jackson, I want to hear from you though. Why? And I, I asked you to be on the show. Uh, me and you know each other from actually Pickens, friend of the show. Um, but I had heard you actually the first time on the movies that made us gay. Shout out Pete and um, Scott, you know, uh, doing Friday the 13th part two, which that's one of my favorite Friday movies. I love that yeah. movie. So good. But I and I was like, you know, the fact that I'm talking to you now is like really kind of surreal to me because I'm like, oh, my God, I was literally just watching. You know, I was listening to you like a year ago and now I'm talking to you. So. It's anyway, it's kind of great. But anyway, but I did reach out to you and I said, hey, I'd love to have you on the show one day. You know, um, you seem like a good movie gay. Like, why not? And I asked you, what would you want to cover? Because I want whoever's on the show to, like, be interested in what they're talking about. And this was one of your picks. So what is it about Carnival of Souls? Why are we covering this today? What what is it about this movie that makes you interested? Okay, well. For the for you and the listeners at home, let's do two stories. One is my childhood connection to this, and then one is my like the book the book gossip that I had promised you offline uh, that we would talk about. But yeah, my my connection with this. Oh my gosh, it started when I got okay. So as a, as an elder millennial, I remember going to the dollar store, and there were, there were just boxes of DVDs for a dollar, and they were never good. They were always like Christian you know tainted movies but then there was this one it was 50 horror movie classics and i was like 50 movies for a dollar mom can i get that and i remember we got it 
and I made my way through all of these really bad B movies. Some of them were really good. Like that was the first time I ever saw Night of the Living Dead was and and it was always like two movies on one disc side. So you had four movies each disc. So it was like great for double features. And so I remember watching Carnival of Souls and going, this is a weirdly good movie. And there was so much eeriness and atmosphere when I watched it. So there's a real nostalgic quality I have to this movie because I remember watching it late at night in my bedroom, like the the glow of the TV and and those uh, shots of Candace Hillegloss on the pavilion and, and walking through, you know, just really creeping me out as a kid. So it's it's the movie that I go back to the most. And I think that I've seen the most next to Night of the Living Dead. I think it's just one of the best, and we're going to get into it, but one of the best and most influential movies that weirdly not a lot of people know about. So I I really it's, like that. It's criminally underrated. I will so say much. that full wholeheartedly yeah. that this movie is, um, I also love how you were able to get like 50 movies for a dollar. I love that. Oh, it was um, great. But- and, and I watched all of them. Like I remember some were awful. I mean, but then some were really great. Night of Living Dead. Brain That Wouldn't Die, Creature from the Haunted Sea. Like, I remember vividly, you know, my sort of cult cinema uh, education starting with those, uh, that box set. I love that. And yeah, but I think this movie in particular is so underrated and so maybe, I think maybe horror fans are starting to come around to it, but god damn it this is such a good movie anyway oh god i can't no, I think, like I just think, and we'll get yeah. all into it yeah i was gonna say well I, I i'm really grateful for criterion collection for putting out a beautiful beautiful remaster of it and i might put that on the list i'm gonna do it i'm gonna buy it maybe yeah it's worth it's worth seeing it and it also has some great featurettes and and special features as well as both cuts of the movie which you know there were allegedly you know two cuts an uncut version and then the release version and it's it's just a really yeah like you said criminally underrated i when i was doing research for my book on it i was really struck by how many people were influenced by it and had not credited it towards towards um you know the things that they actively stole uh so that was so i think it still lives on and i hope it really has a renaissance now with this new criterion transfer i also didn't know there's two cuts to this movie what the hell oh my god now i'm buying this thing uh I, now i need to because i need to watch these two cuts well, uh, me, all right <laughs> well well let me just say real quick the cuts are not in any way revolutionary it's not blade runner at all or anything like that. In fact, the two cuts were so controversially, you know, the thing about this movie and sort of why it fell into the public domain was Herc Harvey, who had directed it, sold it to this distributor called Hertz Lion. And they had taken it and and cut it so that it would be more appealing to drive-in audiences and teenagers and things like that. There's a total of Fair. three minutes cut from the original thing and when you watch the two they are you see the scenes that are cut and it's you know i think i know them off top of my head there's one where after she leaves her hometown church the preacher or the organ factory owner like goes and talks to the guy who's like you know 
cutting wood and there's a long scene between them and then the chase scene at the end is extended by one minute it's like again it's not blade runner quality cuts it's you know it's just so minuscule and yet it, her carvey was very offended that they cut anything from it so i would be too so we got into your childhood uh fascination and interest of this movie so we're gonna finally spill some of the tea that you have with this so you in particular uh actually did write technically a book on this particular movie but you ran into some drama would you like to elaborate on that a little bit i would love to elaborate on this i love telling people this story because this was one of those great i don't even want to call it a show business story it was like a publishing story so i had reached out a few years ago to a publisher who publishes books on horror movies where they're small 90 to 100 page books on yeah on horror films and basically written by experts but also like cultural enthusiasts and people who just really love it but the titles of the book are the titles of the movie so there's one on blood on satan's claw it's called blood on satan's claw there's one on the sixth sense it's sixth sense so i reached out and i said hey i love this movie carnival of souls i think it's very influential and so i wrote this book i wrote the book in the span of uh four weeks uh, with research and getting the images and stuff like that, and then sitting down and reading it, also going literally frame by frame and uh, with the movie and writing uh, an analysis of it. So I turn it in, and I don't hear anything from the editor. And this was uh, this editor was you know an editor for a big uh, university press, and so a few weeks later he reaches out and says hey, so we actually, because they had started the pre-orders of the book, they said, we actually got this message from this lawyer of this guy who owns the trademark of Carnival of Souls, like the trademark title, Carnival of Souls, for anything that's published as a book or, you know, anything. Not a movie, but just as a book. And... This guy apparently has gone up against, you know, NBC and all these things like threatening lawsuits. And so my editor said, we don't want a lawsuit, so we're going to have to pull the book. And I said, okay, like, yes, I understand that. That's fine. So then years later, I was really like, I still wanted to publish it because Criterion just came out with its DVD. And I said, oh, it's getting some traction and I think more people need to know about this. So I decided to self-publish my manuscript under a different title. And the title is uh, called The Movie That Wouldn't Die, which actually was a title of one of the uh, documentary that was made about the movie. And so I, you know, fixed up the manuscript and I put it on the Amazon self-publishing thing and put it out there. And as I was kind of expecting, a few weeks later, <laughs> I get an email from Amazon that says, hey, someone has reached out to us saying that your publication violates a trademark. And uh, pretty sure it was this guy, uh, even though Carnival of Souls was not in the title or anywhere near the synopsis or on any copy. So 
I they said we're just going to have to pull it. So I now have a few copies of this unpublished manuscript about Carnival of Souls if anyone out there is interested in reading about it. So that's the drama of of that. It sounds it's uh. it's not as it's not as, you know, Aaron Brockovich as I have it in my head, but still it's still it was, you know, it's been a a back and forth. I think it's absolutely Barry Brockovich, to be honest with you, because I actually recently watched that movie, too, and I loved it. I think it absolutely is. Listen, um, because we're not trying to keep like queer creators down and talking about our movies that we Thank like. You. Okay? God damn it. Uh, and also, and you also said, and I'm not afraid to say it. Okay, I don't know this guy's name, but you were saying that he has a comic book series. It's probably horrible. Okay. Uh, and then also, like... But what I don't understand with this is, like, literally, like, okay, so you made a comic called Carnival of Souls, which probably isn't even based off of this movie, to be perfectly honest. I don't think so, probably. But, like, really, though? Like, what the hell? Like, that makes no sense. And I'm like, is it really that serious? You know what I mean? For you to go after, like, people like yourself, but also, like, goddamn NBC. Like, we really think you're going to win that? Are you that's what I was, Like, that's what? what? That's what I was so upset about, because I said... You know, this book is being sold for $12.99. I'm getting 20% exactly. of that for each book sold. I am not going to make a single, you know, $200 in five years on, on this book. And even the Amazon thing, I put it, you know, I put like the print, I put the Kindle out for free and then the print for like $10. I said, I'm not trying to make money off of this. I'm just trying to publish my work, you know, and, and something so that people who are interested in this movie can go and read a little bit more about all this research I did. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's like, it's not that serious. Come on, dude. It's okay. Anyway. I'm happy to share the manuscript with anyone out there who wants to read it. If they're interested. Yeah, we've also, on this pod, I have no fear. So I just, uh, not that I call out a bunch of people. I did tell Jared Leto to fuck off on my Urban Legend <laughs> episode because he can. And he also just owns that movie, which is horrible. And I've had to like call out like Scott Rudin before because he did do Clueless, and he's a piece of shit, as you probably know. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, yeah. Um, anyway, so so yes, but, uh, yes. So that is my that is my spilling the tea on the book book drama book drama. Yeah, but now we have this book drama out of the way. But now we're going to move on to a little bit more of just like how this movie came to be, you know, and move into a little bit more of what we normally do on the show, where we talk about you know like the production history, we talk about you know the plot, obviously, and things of that sort. Um, so without further ado, let's get into that. So Carnival of Souls, uh, according to I think it was Wikipedia or IMDb, was released on September 26, 1962, back in the day. Okay. Uh, this was written by uh, John Clifford, the story was, but it was directed and produced by who you said earlier, Herc Harvey. So that was, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about him in the production history part. The budget for this movie, everybody, is $33,000. So this movie is more expensive than... Uh, like paranormal activity i guess less yeah, extensive than the blair witch project was, paranormal was about but, half you know that, yeah yeah uh but we're looking at that i have no box office information because to be honest with you i don't think this really released like that um so i don't have it to share i wish i did um but we're looking at an 87 percent on the tomato meter on rotten tomatoes and then a 73 percent audience score so it's you know on the up and up 
I'm looking at a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb and a letterbox score of 3.7 out of 5, which are very apt and wonderful. And I like that. For our, for our cast of characters, we have Candace Hillegoss as Mary Henry. We have Francis Feist as Mr. Thomas. We have Cindy Berger as uh, John Linden, the guy across the way. Uh, Art Ellison as the minister. Uh, Stan Levitt as Dr. Samuels. Uh, Tom McGinnis as the organ factory boss. And also Forbes Caldwell as the guy who works in the organ factory. We have Dan Palmquist as the guy at the gas station near the end who works there. Uh, Bill DeJarna as the mechanic that I guess she meets along the way. Steve Boozer as Chip, one of uh, John Linden's friends. Uh, Pamela Ballard as the dress sales lady. And also Herc Harvey as one of the main ghouls. Uh, We'll get into some of the critical response of this movie. So we have three of these that I can talk about. So we have like Steve Hunter from the Baltimore Sun. Hey, shout out Baltimore Sun. Who he says, as a piece of film craftsmanship, it's beneath contempt. Okay uh hal lipper from the tampa bay times who says there's no gore and only minimal chills the movie could bore rather than scare you to death and then we also have uh jeff brown from the times uk which is a uk publication who states for all its odd haunting moments carnival souls is best appreciated and knocked off its pedestal because i like focusing on some of the rude comments that people make about movies because (laughs) i think it's more fun than just talking about like how wonderful they are because we already know how wonderful they are yeah, but, uh, but I was uh, gonna say I, I was gonna say I have a good Roger Ebert one here, but yeah, let's focus on the rude. I like the rude one yeah. more. What's the Roger Ebert one though? I want to hear it. Like a lost episode from the Twilight Zone, it plays to supernatural right in the middle of everyday life and surrounds it with ordinary people. It ventures into the edge of camp, but never strays across the line, taking itself with an eerie seriousness. So he actually liked it when it was uh, re-released. We can get into that, yeah. And we'll talk about Twilight Zone because, yes, yes this is very much uh, that. So now we're going to move into a little bit of the production history. So this is definitely a lot of Jackson's kind of... I do have some information, <laughs> of course, but I think I because you did technically write a book on it, um, <laughs> you know, I want to make sure that we talk about this before we move into any kind of plot or whatever. Yeah. So if we're going to talk about Carnival of Souls, we have to talk about the director of this uh, film and the producer, Herc Harvey. So Herc Harvey was a director and a producer of industrial and educational films. So like those fun training videos you watch at work or like the stuff that you watch at school and shit. That's what he worked on pretty much. And he was based in Lawrence, Kansas, in the middle of goddamn nowhere, Kansas. So when he was working for the Centring Corporation, so that's where he worked at. And while returning to Kansas after shooting a Centron film in California, because he would travel around, I guess, for work, Harvey developed the idea for Carnival of Souls after he drove past uh, the abandoned uh, Saltier Pavilion, which is in Salt Lake City. Is that what is in the movie, if I may ask? That is, that is, that's the exact one that is in the movie. Yeah, yeah, so he drove past this fucking weird-ass thing that was probably made by Mormons, who knows. But anyway, because it's in the middle of Salt Lake, so. But he is quoted as saying, when I got back to Lawrence, I asked my friend and co-worker at Centrin Films, uh, John Clifford, who was a writer, how he'd like to write a feature. And he recalled, um, the last scene I told him, I wanted a bunch of ghouls to be dancing in a ballroom. And the rest was up to him, pretty much. So he was pretty much just saying, like, hey, boo, hey, friend, uh, all I, I have a story I want you to write. Oh, the only thing I need you to do is keep that a bunch of ghosts are going to be, like, dancing with each other. But you do whatever the hell else you want. 
and he wrote it in three weeks so that's kind of cool um so yeah i mean that's how this movie really came to be guy was just driving past something he was like yo that place is fucking creepy let's make a movie about this (laughs) which i kind of love actually hey john you know what we should do we're gonna make a horror movie and the horror movie is gonna have ghouls write it I need it in three weeks. We start shooting in four. Yeah, that's exactly no, how I imagine like that conversation going. <laughs> um, like what's interesting though. about the salt air is that it actually used to be a bathhouse way back in the day. And it is I the fact that it stayed like that for so long, you know, just abandoned and no one had really done anything with it. Uh, I, I love those shots in the movie where they go into it. It's just absolutely uh, yeah, breathtaking. But yeah, it's a, it's a, Harvey had a great idea with imagining a ghost story from that huge, huge uh, pavilion. Exactly. Yeah. And making sense, it, when you're talking about it's a bathhouse, are you talking about that it was just like a public bath for people to go to or like the kind of bathhouse we know about? You know I, I think mean? it's, it might have been both. I, for, yeah. I, I, I didn't dive that deep into that research. Um, but I, I did know it used to be a bathhouse way da- way back in the day. And I think they even referenced it in the movie, the gas station attendant says it to her in the first when she's driving. But it is uh, it's gorgeous. Just it's a gorgeous piece of architecture. Like I love all the nooks and crannies of it all. I love that. So yeah, so pretty much like her Harvey was like, I want to make a movie. And he wanted his friend to write it. And so okay, cool. I have a story. Now I got to go cast it, I guess, right? So in New York City, uh, he was uh, Herc was there one day, and he discovered a then twenty three year old actress Candice Hillegas, who had trained with Lee Strasberg uh, in his institute and was one of his students. And he cast her in the lead role of Mary Henry. So she had actually been offered a role in uh, a movie called Violet Midnight, which was done by Richard Hilliard, but she opted to do this role instead. She stated that at the time she took the role as a take the money and run type of situation. And she was paid, apparently, $2,000 for her work on this film, which... I guess in 1962 standards, I don't really know. I mean, obviously, there were, like, huge movie stars that were getting more. But, you know. Still pretty good. Still pretty good. Still pretty good. And from what I've kind of gathered, in a weird way, it didn't fracture her career, really. She just didn't do a lot after this movie. Which is so fucking tragic. Because she is so compelling in this movie. So compelling. Like, I believe everything that she does. And she's so pretty to look at. And she just is somebody who I'm like, God, she could have had, like, way more of a career. Um, And, and yeah, she's just really, uh, I don't know, breathtaking. She's just, like, so interesting to look at. So, yeah, she has a a really great, she has a really great, like, Hitchcock blonde quality to her. That was something that I recognized when i watched it this um this last time was i was just like you know she's very tippy hedron she's very kim novak obviously janet lee you know the the psycho uh after effects of psycho are very rampant in this movie if you watch it like that so yeah she's absolutely great and she did one movie after this uh which was called the curse of the living corpse um, which she's she's actually pretty good in the movie's not great. It's it's a exactly what it sounds like. It's a B movie kind of Agatha Christie uh, knockoff horror movie, but she's great in it. And you're right. It's like I would love to see her do 
streetcar named Desire or you know, like Listen, any, any yes. like really great, great uh, Hollywood uh, picture. So, but she was she was more of a theater actress. So I think she stayed pretty steady doing like summer stock after this. Uh, but she didn't really make many movies after this one. No, and that's, that's not just because of the fact that you know being in a horror cast in a horror movie at this time was sort of seen as the equivalent of you know movie stars going on uh game shows you know and like your career's right, right. done but also because you know she had a really bad experience with her carvey one of the things i write about in the book is that there's a lot of parallels between the way harvey treated her and the way kubrick treated shelly duvall in the shining where Harvey like rarely spoke to Hillegoss. He barely gave her any direction. He, you know, would have her do sort of take after take after take and then, you know, move on to something else. So there was a lot of, I, I don't want to say abuse because it it's not documented as that, but, you know, there was just a lot of this sort of psychological power play between the two of them. And so it kind of feeds into her performance where she she feels very lost. She doesn't know what's going on. And I think that, uh, you know, Harvey's lack of direction of her and lack of belief and uh, kind of played into her own character as Mary. So I thought that was really interesting. So she was very affected by the making of this movie um, from what I read about in the research. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even know anything about that. And again, I think it plays so much into her character and, and uh, it's so awful because it's like method, but not actually method because you're just going through yeah. hell. So yeah. it's like, oh God. Ugh. And she, and she, you know, later, I mean, there's a great documentary where there's a reunion of Carnival of Souls and she's there and her Carvey's there and, you know, John Stanley's there. Like all these people are there from, from it. So it's not like she harbored any resentment to him. I think it just turned off, turned her off from filmmaking um, as a result. I don't think she had any bad blood for, you know, the movie once the legacy sort of took off after that. That's true. That's fair. Completely fair. Uh, a little fun fact, too. So John Linden, who is the across the way neighbor, who is a dick in this movie, by the way, but he is kind of charming at first. But uh, Cindy Berger is his name. And I found out that apparently he's no longer with us, but he became the chairperson of the acting and drama department at um, University of Houston. Um, yeah. And he was also the director of the Houston Film, uh, the Shakespeare Festival. Uh, he stepped down in 2007. He died in 2012 or something. But I just think that's so cool. I don't really know what other movies he was in, but I kind of love the fact that he probably only got a few movies under his belt. Uh, but he was like, yeah, I'm just going to go be an acting professor, which honestly, and I love all my acting professors I had. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I love you all so much. Uh, the, the two I had like were amazing. But I mean... Like, yeah, it's not like they were in, like, a ton of... They were in theater, you know? That's what right, they did. They right. weren't, like... Yeah. And that is what happens. Like, unless you go to somewhere like goddamn NYU, and, um, you know, maybe you get a person who, like... Although, you remember what you remember when, like, James Franco, like, taught at NYU for a minute? And I was like, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. It was, yeah, um, and you're just, like, you're just doing this as a 
part of your next performance piece, but yeah, good for okay, you. Yeah. good for you. Although, did you know, um, we're you're a little older than me, I think. Uh, did you know that for a time, uh, well, also Casey Lemons is uh, also on staff there, apparently. Uh, Ease Bayou, and like she just what? did a Whitney movie. Yeah, Casey Lemons. Um, she okay. works at NYU, I think. Uh, and her Vondi Curtis Hall is her husband. And if you know who he is, he's an actor. Yeah. He was in Eve's Bayou, and he was right. in, recently in the Night House. But yeah. uh, he also teaches there too. But also, a little fun fact too: Elizabeth Hess was an actress lady, um, and uh, she is mostly known for. Uh, she was a, a teacher up there, apparently, and she is most, I think, well known by me at least uh, for being the mom from Clarissa Explains It All. So good for her being a little oh acting professor. Oh my up god! There. Good for them. Yeah, you know I what? That. I want to be. I want to be taught by her. I want to be taught by her. Hell yes, I would love Hell that. Yeah. Anyway, you know that's the weird thing about because I went to school for theater and all that, and so that's the weird thing right. you get sometimes is like, yeah, like that's the weird thing you get sometimes where like you're like what the fuck like who are some of these professors that you get like because some of them you're like okay they were a theater actor or whatever but then i'm assuming that sometimes when you get like your acting professors especially if they're an adjunct or something you're just like okay i don't know what you're doing uh i don't know who you think you are sometimes but like (laughs) it's this inflated sense of self i think they can have sometimes because maybe they were like in like a movie like or two right right yeah, like, I had I've, acting. I had acting professors who were like that. They were like, "I was a background actor on this very big movie," and it was like, "Okay, but that doesn't qualify you to teach acting." Sorry. Yeah, but, I'm yeah. sorry about that. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so uh, enough about us like talking shit about our education. It's not really. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but uh, we're gonna get into the filming of this. So okay, we have our cast. Now we have to film. So Harvey shot this movie in three weeks on location in Lawrence, Kansas and Salt Lake City. I guess they're near each other uh, or you can drive to them, I guess. It's drivable. Um, it's dri- yeah, I, I, I mapped it out when I was writing the book. It's drivable. Yeah, it's drivable. Uh, and they took- and they shot first in Kansas and then went to Salt Lake and then went and did some reshoots in Kansas. Yeah. Love it. Um, so he took three weeks off of his job to direct the film. He started with an initial production budget of $17,000. He then raised that from asking local businessmen if they were willing to get give $500 for the production. So he had like people just give him money being like, hey, do you want to give to my production and my movie I'm making? Uh, the other 13000 of the total $30,000 budget, which again, it's like thirty to 33000 was just deferred. So he was just able to like, you know, all right, it'll happen, and I promise, like, it'll make some money, I guess. He was able right. to uh, get the rental of the site, the Saltier uh, Pavilion, for $50. And many of the other scenes, like, so Mary going to the department store, uh, I'm sure in some of the other parts she's done, uh, were really just done, like, literally, like, guerrilla-style stuff. Like, he just went to a place and paid off some of the locals to be like, Hey, can I film here real quick? Um, That's how you did it back then a little bit when you weren't, I mean, this is like such a feat of low budget filmmaking. It's so crazy. Um, Well, and what I love about it, sorry uh, to interrupt, but what I love about it too, that I uncovered in the research was that he was using his work film and cameras and equipment and all this stuff so he took three weeks off but then he also used all of this professional filmmaking equipment so everything had to be one take or two 
So he really had to think through every single shot and then be like, we're going to do this. There you go. Like you couldn't do five or six takes for every shot. Like he had to do like one or two and then you moved on. So when you watch the movie like that, it's kind of incredible because some of those shots are really well thought out and beautifully um, conceptualized. So it's, yeah, it's kind of amazing low budget film wise, like you said, that he could pull that off with such a low budget. Yeah, this movie looks so pretty. And the fact that it's like, uh, it's only made for 30 something thousand dollars. It's insane. Um, but yeah, so he just employed techniques he had already learned about to like help save on costs that he did. So again, that's just what he did. I won't get into too much crazy other stuff that I got from this, but like his assistant director was uh, Reza uh, Badai, I guess, who was a, a immigrant from Iran who was just beginning his film career. Um, and so uh, at that time, uh, he had been working on a Roger Robert Altman film called The Delinquents, and he ended up then going and doing like um, openings and montages for shows like Hawaii Five O, Get Smart, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. So he might have been the one who like literally like does the whole like uh, Love Is All Around or whatever. You know, that's kind of fun. Right. Um, I didn't know that. That's amazing. It, he might have done that. I don't actually know who did that, but the fact that he was involved in that after this movie is really cool. What I also love is that the most expensive thing on the production was the repairing of the bridge. Oh, yeah. I was just about to get into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Want- I love that. Anyway, yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I don't know how much it was, but I just remember reading the tidbit in two different sources that the most expensive part of the production was the bridge at the beginning of the uh, movie that where the car falls off. They had to replace the bridge and the county or the town charged them this, you know, like a hundred or two hundred dollars or something like that. And that was the most expensive thing they spent money on in the production. Yeah, I got this uh, thing from Wikipedia, so I mean, it might be true. Apparently, where did it come <laughs> from? I wonder. It came from um, where the hell is it coming from? But it came from uh, so the ch- town did not charge a fee for the use of it. Apparently, only requiring right. them to replace the bridge's right. damaged rails, and apparently that was only done at a cost of twelve dollars for the repair. Because again, they had to like break through it because they fall into the right. river. We'll get we'll get to it, but um. Yeah, that's kind of cool. A little bit about the music score. So if you haven't already seen this film, like literally like it has such a beautiful Ugh. organ score. Oh, my God. Best. And it was done by a local guy, uh, Gene Moore. He's an organist and composer. Uh, a film and music his scholar by the name of Julie Brown, who I love Julie Brown from Clueless and uh, Bloody <laughs> Birthday. But anyway, but she, wrote, um, she wrote a really good essay on on the was it organs of horror or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. It. Of course, it's the same yeah. person, obviously. Yeah, uh, but person. she she mentions the organ is one of the most spectral presences in Carnival of Souls, summoning up or being summoned up by the various allusions in the film to cinema's past. And um, John Clifford, the screenwriter, has stated that uh, the locations that Harvey chose uh, influenced the decision to make uh, a organ score in particular. So then um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, do you have any information about the release of this movie or like, why didn't it really have a whole lot of box office information or what happened maybe with the release of the film? Well, what happened from what I understand about what happened with the release was that it, it really, so 
Harvey was sort of shopping it around. They had a premiere in Kansas and it was, you know, very successful. Everyone loved it. And, you know, some people showed up in makeup, you know, white, white face makeup and ghoul makeup. Um, and then Harvey thought to sell it to a distributor. So Hertz Lion was uh, the one that they sold, ultimately sold it to because Hertz Lion said, we're going to capitalize on what was going on in the late 50s and early 60s with drive-ins and horror movies. But Hertz Lion got it. They cut it up, um, aka cut out three minutes, and then they started to put it out but then hertz lion went bankrupt so it ultimately fell into the public domain and harvey saw no profits from it which was really unfortunate and it kind of that's that sort and he was so distraught it was really sad it was so distraught by how that relationship with hertz lion the distributor ended up that he just never bothered to put the put it back out. But then there was a revival in I think the late eighties, early nineties or something like that. I forget what prompted it. Maybe there was some anniversary of it. But it started to be shown around in independent art house theaters around America. And people started to really, you know, pay attention to it and say, this is a really great film. This is very underappreciated. It was obviously shown on uh, television in the 60s and 70s and uh, when it fell into the public domain so yeah it was it was just really it was really sad harvey was really distraught after the hertz lion um fallout that he didn't yeah it didn't really make any money until you know it was uh, re-released in the 80s or 90s yeah i I see there's a trend. I've only been doing this show for a few months, but I see there's a trend sometimes of how sometimes production companies uh, just go under when there's about to be a movie coming, like making, you know, coming out. Um, and that affects the film, which then I think turns it into this cult classic because they really didn't get much of like a release or like they were just kind of like seen as this one other thing. Examples of this are like Elvira Mistress of the Dark. Hey girl, I have mentioned you now twice. Uh, but if you yeah. don't already know, literally that movie, like new world pictures had it. And then literally they went out of business not too long after same thing with Heather's like that also happened by new world pictures. Like, you know, uh, good old Roger Corman, but, but it's like that you have like that hocus pocus. I mentioned that in my episode, they didn't even have a premiere for that movie. Like they, that was a Disney movie. And yeah. Romy Michelle. Yeah. Like Romy Michelle. Uh, uh, so H Hocus Pocus was released by Disney, technically, and didn't even, they didn't even have a premiere for that movie. So they put all that money into that, but they were putting a lot of their money into Nightmare Before Christmas, really. And right. that was more of a summer hit that they did or a summer yeah. release that they did, but they didn't even have a release for that movie. They didn't even have like a, a premiere for it. And the same thing with Romy Michelle. Uh, they had like a really slapped together premiere for that movie, and they really Touchstone tried to bury that movie. People tend to forget, and then it mm -hmm. kind of came back yeah. as this cult classic thing because it was showing on TV and things like that. But 
I think there's a trend here. There's a ton of those examples of like, I think that's partly why some films become cult classics because they're forgotten or they're like a part of this like sort of scandalous thing that happened and they kind of just went underground in a weird way. So, you know, I do. Are, do you have any other examples of that? Like that you can think of? Well, I just, I mean, new world pictures is probably the most famous. So if anyone wants to Google new world pictures and hear about that, and then even hear about, I mean, when I was a film programmer and I wanted to program Elvira mistress of the dark, I was told by several friends in the film programming industry that in fact you have to contact the person who distributes the rights to show Elvira Mistress of the Dark which was this one guy uh, who was a lawyer who had been part of New World Pictures and you had to call him in Nevada and beg for him to give you Elvira Mistress of the Dark so yeah I mean Hertz Lion is is a great example of older and there were just so many pop-up distribution and production companies at this time, or distribution especially, where, um, you know, they were just sort of, for lack of a better phrase, like whoring out these, you know, uh, uh, movies to to drive-ins and to exploitation theaters and stuff like that to make a buck. And that goes back as early as like the 30s with like people who were, just traveling around the country uh, showing movies in order to make a buck. So, but yeah, new world pictures, I think is the best example of that. Shout out to new world pictures. If you're still out there, but I think they've sold some of the rights. I think they've given a lot of rights over um, if I'm not mistaken, because Elvira mistress of the dark had a wonderful shout factory release recently so yes yes and it's on like you know different places you can stream it all over the place but yeah no i just think that's like a weird kind of like thing we see that just happens you know or or like i was saying with romy michelle like that was touchstone that's a disney place but like they buried that shit because i don't think they had faith in the movie like you know and not at all it's just one of those weird things but drop dead gorgeous too i mean that's a great example of that that was i think miramax but that was buried as well so you know even these big these big studios like you said just can bury these when they think it's not going to perform well so right or it's also that so drop dead gorgeous like you were saying um even sugar and spice to a point i haven't seen that movie but that was an example where lona williams who did drop dead gorgeous if you don't already know um she is the uh third judge in the movie uh but she also wrote it and is based off her own life kind of sort of but uh she also did Sugar and Spice, which is a movie about cheerleaders with Marley Shelton, all that stuff. Uh, I talk a little bit about it in um, Bring It On episode uh, because they were kind of the dueling cheerleading movies. But Lona Williams actually took her name off of Sugar and Spice because she was so upset with how this went, honestly. I don't think it was the vision she was looking for that ended up happening. Let's just say there's that. And, you know, you know, and, and then also like disturbing behavior. Have you ever heard of disturbing? Behavior? Yes. Yeah. That was another one, too, where it's in like the faculty kind of realm of horror movies. Disturbing behavior was from a guy who and we're doing an episode on it at some point. OK, listen, you'll hear about this. But like that movie, the director got the movie he wanted. He definitely did. 
but it got cut up so badly that now what our theatrical releases now of 80 something minutes is what we have. And it's kind of a disjointed story. It's a good movie, but that also happens too, where a movie gets cut to shit. I mean, there's that, uh, I talk about it in, um, I have my, my, uh, Pam Greer moment on my bogus journey episode, but I talk about bones. That was another one too. Bones. Bones. Was there was, uh, was Michael Mann's be... the keep, which, you know, was, cut down yeah. from three hours to 80 God. minutes and completely missed insane insanity, insanity. Like, yeah but and you know i yeah. but then i i think about like re, thinking about redonkulousness like you know harvey was really upset with hertz lion when they cut three minutes like three minutes of right. the fine and and then released it to drive-ins thinking that it was going to elevate the horror and it doesn't when you watch the three minutes you're just like okay like right like it's just more plot development so you know i i think for this film they were being a little dramatic so i think filmmakers can be a little touchy when it comes to that again it's because it's their it's their baby and all that and i get baby, it but yes. anyway yeah uh but to move into the legacy of this movie this movie has gained a cult following since it's released it's considered a low budget classic completely um it's been involved uh it's been on lists like complex magazine named it number 39 of its 50th 50th scariest of uh, movies ever made uh slant put it at number 32 as the 100 best horror movies of all time the academy film archive in 2012 restored it uh and so you know that was just a precursor to what criterion did and now it's in the criterion collection so that's always really good too this movie and me and jackson were talking about this offline um when we were instagram dming but i mean i can tell for a fact that 20-something-year-old David Lynch was in Montana somewhere, wherever the hell he was, and he watched this movie and was like, I'm going to make a movie. I, I, like, I say that in my book where I say, like, it. you can actually trace back, like, given the time period that this came in. So let's think about this. 1962 and how young a young David Lynch was, how young a young George Romero was and the fact that movies that fell into the public domain, such as this one were played constantly on late night television. You hear stories from these filmmakers and stuff where they were like, I used to stay up after my parents went to sleep and watch bride of the monster. And so you can, you can totally draw a straight line between Eraserhead and Carnival of Souls and also Night of Living Dead and Carnival of Souls. So absolutely, people watch this uh, all the time. And I even think probably Scorsese watched these. Like you you just think about the directors of that generation and, and uh, what they watched. Yeah, they probably watched absolutely. this movie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like it's that. I mean, it's definitely uh, inspired David Lynch George A. Romero, which is so funny. I love Romero. And, um, like, the fact that his film, his penultimate film, had the same thing happen to it where it fell into the public domain. Yeah, until yeah. Until recently. Like, isn't that yeah. ridiculous? No, like, no, no. That's, same that's thing happened. hysterical you make that. Yeah, because, yeah, Night of Living Dead was uh, part of a distributor. And then the distributor, I think, went bankrupt and... It fell into the public domain, so he has seen no money from. I mean, I know he's passed, but 
he saw no money from that film the the greatest zombie movie ever made um I, absolutely right also we talk about modern influences i think this movie i think when she's with dr samuels like their little like back and mm-hmm. forth it's in a lana del rey song if i'm not mistaken uh i believe that it's in there uh but also it is it is listen I'm pretty, but wouldn't it make most so much sense? Because there's so much melancholy in this movie. It makes sense that Lana Del Rey has probably seen this movie. I'm not even gonna lie to you. The fact that she's not dressed up, like, wait, the fact that she's not dressed up like fucking Mary, like, is ridiculous. It's very much her style, her style. I would watch her in a remake of this. Although I do want to see Florence Pugh in a remake of this, but I do, oh, but I think, it, but I yes. think, uh, I think Lana Del Rey would actually do very well in this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. good. Oh my god, yes. Uh, and then also James Wan loves this movie apparently, yes! and you could see his influences. So this is so James Wan. If you want to call me, my number is nine one nine. So because I make a claim where I say James Wan obviously stole from Carnival of Souls for Insidious, especially. I mean, I think The Conjuring has a lot of moments that are taken from here. Although The Conjuring is more taken from The Haunting, obviously, and those haunted house movies of the thirties. But there's a lot of of things in insidious where it's this infiltration of the ghouls into ordinary life and so i yeah and then in insidious 2 there's a full scene where barbara hershey wakes up and she's in a room and carnival souls is playing on the tv behind her so it's like it's it's very obvious he loves this movie, except he hasn't expressed that publicly. So James Wan, if you want to express that publicly, now's your chance. The I'm other saying, thing, you know, the other thing I want to yeah. say is it follows very much took from this, yeah. Yeah. you know, the very, you know, uh, sort of the presence, the I'm trying to run away, but I'm also trying, you know, but they're also there. They're over there in the distance and. The fact that the man is is kind of slower, not as slow as Romero's zombies. But then also two other things that I mentioned in the book, which is The Others with Nicole Kidman, is I, I think a direct ripoff of Carnival of Souls, where it's this sort of atmospheric trying to be you know, somebody you're not and then ultimately finding out you're dead the whole time. And then also the sixth sense, like no one, no one tracked. Yeah, yeah, no one tracks that the sixth sense stole from Carnival of Souls. Like no, like yeah. no one, yeah. no one made that connection. It's kind of people insane. want to make the argument. People want to make the argument that somehow twenty uh, something year old M Night Shyamalan was up one For night in nineteen ninety something, yeah. and was like watching. Well. I well, I wasn't gonna say that. I was gonna say that people want to claim that the Sixth Sense was a ripoff of an episode of uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark called The Tale of the Dream Girl, um, and because in that episode, uh, it's this guy he works at a bowling alley and he um, sees this girl and it's just like he uh, anyway you find out he's dead the whole time. Yeah, no, that it was no, actually no. him and his girlfriend died no. or whatever. But anyway, so like, but people have stated like, oh, like M Night Shyamalan totally ripped off like this episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark or whatever, right? <laughs> 
but they didn't. Like, he probably did Carnival of Souls, to be honest. He's probably seen that movie. Uh, but yeah. we'll talk about that. But then also, uh, we were talking offline about this as well. Uh, this was very inspired by Shirley Fletcher, I think her name mm-hmm. is, and her story, The Hitchhiker. Yes, yeah. Uh, which I read in middle school, and I loved And it. which was also uh, adapted was also... into Twilight. But yeah, no, I definitely think like, you know, when it comes to this, uh, you know, I, yeah, you're totally right. I think with Lynch, like, you know, I would like him to go on record. I feel like he has said that he's watched this movie before, maybe. But like, yeah, you're totally yeah. right. Like you were talking about like, you know, Lost Highway, like the guy who has like the uh, Robert Blake, like he is a literal homage to right. that. Yeah, you know, it's Balthazar, like that. Balthazar something is, yeah, he's, yeah. he's an homage to that. Like yeah, you were yeah, talking yeah. about with Eraserhead, which I cannot deal with um, half the time. But like, you know, <laughs> like you were saying, like Mary Henry is like, the guy's name is Henry. Um, what's the name of the girl in that that he's with? Do you remember? I don't um, remember the, her name. I don't remember, I don't remember her, her either. Yeah. I thought her name was Mary for some reason, which I was just like, that might be, so. that might be it. Yeah. Um, anyway, but like, th- but that, like the radiator scene, the lady in the radiator mm-hmm. looks like yeah. a ghoul. I mean, it's just these things where like, we're talking about like the legacy of this movie. Again, so many people like, no, you're totally right though. I, I kind of wish that Lynch would just come out and say like, I have homaged this before, uh, which I don't think he really has. Yeah. And, you know, I just kind of wish that, like, you know, again, this movie is so criminally underrated. It's so beautiful and wonderful and, and so atmospheric that I think is it's a disservice for any horror fan to not have seen it, especially for how accessible it is. It's on YouTube, y'all. I mean, yeah, it's, so it's, on, it's, in the, it, it's still technically is in the public domain. I mean, the restoration yeah. is copyrighted, but, uh, you know, it's it's in the public domain. You can find it anywhere. So. It's exactly. yeah, it's Go still great. It. And I it's funny when I watch a lot of horror movies, I still see it. Like I still see parts of it and obviously, you know, the sixth sense, the ending, the twist ending is directly taken from this, but then also there are just this sort of like is is this person dead? Is this person alive? This surrealism that horror movies can move into is very much taken from this, which is kind of a revolutionary thing to think about because you think like, well, no, obviously someone did this before this, but this was 1962. And the biggest horror that it came out before it was really Psycho, which changed everything in 1960. And then even before that, it was Alien Invasion. It was Victorian, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein. So this sort of American horror didn't emerge until after Psycho, this idea that the killer could be somebody who looks like you, who's next door, things like that. Um, Or even with this, what's so great is that like the supernatural, the other world is invading in on our American lifestyle, which, uh, which I think this movie does perfectly, but I, but I'm giving it a lot of credit for uh, for what it did. It it deserves that much credit, which is why we're doing yeah. that. Because, like you were saying, like right, I completely agree. Because, and also, we're both cisgendered gay men. Okay, I don't have a lady here to talk about it, but also just like this is one of those 
female unreliable narrator stories, you know? Um, it deals with the psyche of a woman in particular. And is she going kind of crazy? Like, is she, like... Right, like, is she is she dead? Is she alive? Like, what's going on with her? Uh, or, or whatever. Uh, this is in the, uh, if you have a Shutter account right now, it is in the movie uh, collection of House of Psychotic Women because it does kind of fit in there a little bit. But yeah, no, even talking about just, like, how John Linden treats her through the movie and, like, the fact that she is perfectly content with not having a boyfriend or friends or or things like that. And this is 1962, y'all. Like, this is still, like, this is before the sexual revolution. This is before, this is when women still had a very particular place in the home. And uh, Mary is a person who has a level of agency and a level of independence that I don't think, like, yeah, like... I was, was going to say... Seen as, just... She's seen as cold, but, like, she, yeah. I don't think is, like... I'm just you know, la- it, yeah. I'm laughing because, like, everyone is so in her pants the entire movie. Yeah. She's so she's, unbothered. And she's just like, just fucking leave me alone, like... You know, because they're like, well, I don't know about organ music. And she's like, I just want to fucking play the organ. That's it. And Mr. Linden and Mrs. Thomas, you know, like everyone is so inundating her with expectations. And she's so unbothered by it the entire time. Um, One of the things I love, too. Yeah. yeah. Sorry to cut you off. But like one of the things I love is also that she sees her job as a job and yeah because her job is very much like in you know r- church music because she's an organist but she even says she's like i just see my job as a job i play for pay and that's really it so she's actively not really a religious person but she works in religious environments like you know that's another thing that people were like oh my probably like oh my god right what? right like, you yeah. know she she doesn't go to church it's like no she goes there for work and she leaves bitch like who cares like <laughs> that's like so punk rock i think like i don't know like it was yeah <laughs> well and what's great too is like i wrote a little bit about it in the book where it was just like there's nothing about her sexuality like and and normally in uh, or nowadays i should say not normally but nowadays in a movie where there is a strong female presence, oftentimes it, it there is a component that is like, you know, a relationship or remains of a relationship or, you know, something and uh, something related to sexuality and um, intimacy. And for her, there's, there's like a lack of any of that. And so when, so it, it's not important, you know what I mean? Like it's not anything that, is trying to make a statement about feminism or women's sexuality or women or gender power dynamics. She just doesn't want a man in her life, you know? And yet there are all yeah. these men who are trying to, to, to be with her, including the ghoul, you know, who are trying to inundate her and capture her within this uh, convention that society wants of her. So that that's another reason I like the film. I'm like, I actually see it as a really feminist women's liberation forward picture because she is very much wanting to reject anything that society projects on her 
and yet society is the thing that closes in on her at the end of the film i agree yeah no that's totally fair and yeah i just oh my god this movie is so good anyway so we're gonna just keep yapping about it i guess but we're gonna then also now since we talked about how much this movie is wonderful how amazing it is we're then gonna move now into an actual plot summary of carnival of souls all right so we start our film with some drag racing uh we got our like little opening credit of like who made the movie and who distributed it but we have drag racing and it's funny because these guys in a car these old-timey cars and then these girls in a car and i think uh jackson was just saying like you know they say what do they say again gentlemen start your end no 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 that's that's rupaul that's rupaul uh but they they say want to drag huh yeah so it's so about silly. it's a battle of the sexes, man, uh, men yeah. versus girls. Come on. Yeah, yeah. So then they drag race a little bit, and you know they're like, "All right, let's do it." So then uh, what ends up happening is they're on this bridge, and they're like neck and neck with each other, and all this stuff. And then what ends up happening is the car with the women falls into the river that's above the bridge or uh, below the bridge. Sorry. And then once they fall into the river, of course they have to call the you know the guys have to call the police because. Because they're like, oh my god, like we just had an accident. Um, and then we have our opening title sequence of uh, Carnival of Souls. We get like all of our, uh, you know, like different people involved and all this. And this is very different than, uh, it feels different than any other movie I've seen. Because just the way it looks, I guess. But we're into our story now. So we see that they're looking for the car in the river. So the police have been called and all this. And they're doing a search. So they're just scanning the water, trying to figure out what's going on, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, we see that I have in my notes, her name's Muddy Mary is what I call her. Oh. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm sorry. But Muddy Mary, because she's covered in mud, appears from the river and she walks up. And this is like one of the most striking images in the movie because it's so haunting. With her just covered in mud, her dress is all covered in mud, and she just has this look on her face that it's just so, like, unnerving. And it just, it it adds to the level of melancholy and atmosphere in this movie because you could see that she's just like, what the fuck just happened, you know? So she then comes back up um, on the bridge to watch the search party because she's like, oh no, my girls, like, they're, they must have like drowned i guess like you know and i survived somehow like what the fuck you know so she's watching from the bridge um she then gets there's another car that's on the bridge apparently she gets into the car um and then we kind of just snap cut to another part of the movie where now mary is playing organ because that is what she does for a living she plays the organ um and uh She's being watched by some dudes. So I guess in this realm, um, and Jackson, feel free to chime in or whatever. uh, But I guess she's at the factory where it's made at. Um, And so she's being watched by these dudes. And here we find that she's actually, uh, we don't actually know where she lives at. I'm assuming this is Kansas, I guess. But she talks about how she's going to Utah to go take a job as an organist there. Um, so, you know, and pretty much she, I have in my notes, I say Mary is fucking out of there. Cause she even says to the owner of the factory and the worker Thank there, you, she's like, but I'm never coming back. Oh my God. Oh, it's so good. Fantastic. Great, great line. Great line. Great line. She's just like, cause they're like, oh, you might as well, you could come back or whatever. She's like, I'm never coming back here ever. <laughs> like I almost died. Like what the <laughs> hell are you talking about? Uh, anyway. 
So she is driving along the stretch of road. So I guess from fucking Kansas to Utah, um, she's driving along uh, this just like stretch of highway. And I'm assuming that you have done this drive, Jackson, because you're from the East Coast. So you must have. Uh, no, I've never done, done this drive. I should oh do this God. drive. I should do oh this God. drive. But I, I know Kansas. I know that drive. I've known people and family who have done that drive. And it's a oh long God. drive. Yeah, yeah, long drive, and it's just nothing. That's what's creepy about it. It's just there's nothing there, and it's just like all this stuff. And you, I don't get that unless you go into the country, I guess. Like where it's just flat, you know. So that's that also just adds to the weirdness. But anyway, so Mary's driving along, driving along, and she then sees this creepy ghoul dude who um, is played by the director of this movie, um, and he just like beckons her kind of, and he's just like there, like in the window, and she like freaks the fuck out and like goes on the side of the road, and she's just like, okay, like maybe I'm just seeing things, like I need to get some sleep, like I need to, I don't know what, right? So then we have our intro to Mary's new pad in Utah. She is a boarder, so she is like ready renting a room at this place uh which is owned by mrs thomas uh who is an icon and she's the landlady so she's in her new little pad and miss thomas is talking about like you know how you can take as many baths as you want uh, because so she's, not really, she's really obsessed with mary taking baths which is for whatever weird. reason i don't know yeah, why very weird. um but she's she's not one to be uh, stingy about that kind of thing. And then she sees, she looks out her window and she sees the ghoul dude outside of her window again. And she's just like, okay, like, what the hell is this? Like, who is this guy? Like, I, I don't know. All right, whatever. So then we have our intro to Mary and the priest, because again, she's working at a church. This is why she's come here. So Mary and the priest are talking, and I think they're talking a little bit about just like, oh, well, you know, we'd love you for you to come to one of the services. And she's just like, oh, well, you know, I just kind of come to my job and I, I don't really do a whole lot of that stuff. Like, you know, it'd be good to get like maybe some friends or, you know, try to get a sense of community but mm, no not really i'm fine and then we get into mary playing some organ because that's what she's there to do so of course she is there to do that so she's just playing organ but then in the meantime though i guess during the course of this conversation and correct me if i'm wrong i guess they were talking about because during her drive uh she was seeing this like lonely pavilion that is just out in the middle of utah um and she was just interested in that so she's like, hey, you know what? I passed by this place and I would like to see more of it. Like, do you think maybe we could drive over there? Uh, because then Mary and the priest, her new boss, drive out to the freaky building or carnival is what I put in my notes. Right. I didn't know what yeah. it was, but yeah, they drive no, over there. Yeah. 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 So they're just there. But he's telling her about like how, oh, this is what this place is. Like it hasn't been used. It's really just like it's not it's abandoned uh nobody's really supposed to go there all that kind of stuff and she's like maybe i'll come back another time or whatever i'm like okay also i love his look when when she's like i'll come back another time and he's like what the fuck what what do you what do you mean you're gonna come back yeah didn't i just tell you that it's abandoned (laughs) and you shouldn't go there like what are you doing anyway okay whatever girl um anyway my notes are all over the place, but I then have, okay, so she went to see the freaky, like, uh, pavilion place, and her and her boss were driving out there. Then I have on my notes, I have landlady clumping down the stairs, because she Clump is clumping down, down the 
Yes. And oh, I also mentioned this to Jackson beforehand, but this movie has, for the dubbing and sound of it all, the dubbing of an Italian giallo. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> it, it was probably out of it's the so fact true. that they didn't have money. Like, uh, yeah. like so they, a lot of this was ADR'd, like, yeah. after the fact, I yeah. honestly, like, that's why it just sounds like so weird and some of the sounds kind of off and I don't know. It's amazing though. Uh, but anyway, she calms down the stairs like I was talking about and she sees Mary and you know, they're talking about like, Hey, I'm about to make some food. Like, you know, um, I'll bring something up to you. Like, you know, you should have something to eat. And she's like, okay, that's great. Miss Thomas. That's fine. Um, and then she's, I'm going to take one of those baths that you told me about or whatever. Um, yeah. So we then see Mary taking a bath. Um, and you know what I love about this movie? We were mentioning it a little earlier, but it's one of these movies that is just like, it was played on TV all the time. I would absolutely love, um, not that I'm a teacher or anything, I would love to play this for um, like some high schoolers, like on Halloween or something. Like this is a perfect movie for that because it's not violent. There's no blood. There's no none of that. I just would love to show like some preteen teenagers like you want to see a scary movie like here's one you yeah. can watch yeah you know oh, I mean? totally. oh totally oh it's so tame like it's so tame and yeah. but it's so fucking freaky and, and, you could then, and unsettling yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and unsettling and they could be like what the fuck did i just watch and it's perfect for that so anyway i don't know yeah but then we see that uh mary meets john linden we kind of saw him a little bit because Miss Thomas did say that, like, oh, it's just you, me, and, you know, Mr. Linden. Like, he's the guy who rents the other room. Yeah, so Mary meets him because, you know, he's in the house. And John is being a little bit of a peeper because really what happened was that she thought it was Miss Thomas coming up with her food, but it wasn't. So, you know, she is in her towel and everything, and she's like, oh, okay, like, Mrs. Thomas is here. And she's like, oh, shit, I thought you were Mrs. Thomas. Like, you know, and he's like, oh, no, like, you know, I'm the guy across the way or whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. I was, she was like, well, give me a minute, like, whatever. And then I was just saying, like, he's being a little bit of a peeper because you see that she puts, she's in her towel and then she puts on her robe and she, like, takes the towel off. And she's, he's just looking at her kind of weird, like, as you would. Um, yeah, he's a pervert. He's, he's a pervert. He's a pervert. Yeah, he's, he's a pervert. A pervert. Yeah. Um, anyway, so then Mary invites him in pretty much to be like, okay, well, I guess if we're neighbors, like, we might as well get to know each other a little bit. But she kind of rebuffs him, though. Like, she's just like, mm, yeah, okay, like, cool, but, like, go away. Like, I'm not really into seeing you right now. And so then, you know, he she rebuffs him, but then she's outside of her room in her little robe, and she then um, looks down at the bottom floor, at the ground level, I guess, and she sees that that ghoul is there. And she's just like, what the fuck? Who is this guy, dude? Like, what is this? And now he's in the place I'm at? Like, what the hell? So she runs back into her, like, room. She's like, okay, God. Uh, But then it's Mrs. Thomas actually does come up and gives her some food and I think some coffee as well. So she eats a little something. She's going to get some coffee, you know. And so Miss Thomas is, you know, there as well. Uh, I don't know what to even think about Mrs. Thomas. Like, I'm just like, what is she supposed to be, like, a fucking, like, allegory for or whatever the hell? I don't know. But, like... I think she's just, she's just kind of, I I don't know. It's funny because she plays it like this very Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill kind of like, oh, I am so, I'm so, I have such backstory and subtext and yet she's not, she has no character development. So no, not at all. Anyway, who knows? Um, But anyway, so then 
after she had her food and her coffee or whatever, uh, Mary just can't sleep. And she you just see this like shot of her in her bed and she's just like her eyes are open and she's just like looking and she looks out the window to the pavilion because she could see it from where she lives. So it's just out in the dark and all that. And she just looks at it because she's just interested in it. She just can't take her eyes off. She just like, can't take her eyes off of it for whatever reason. And I'm like, okay, girl, like, you know, you got to look at this thing. I don't know why you're so interested in this place, but all right. So then we have Mary waking up and John is at the door. Um, cause he like knocks on the door cause he wants to see her. He likes her. So then John and Mary, they decide he has coffee with him. And so he decides to like, um, come in and they're going to have a little, like just, you know, a little nice, nice morning thing. This is where we find out, um, that she studied, Oregon in college that's what she does for a living we find out that he had went to college before but it wasn't really for him he now works at the factory and all that he's just like a down-home kind of blue-collar guy and whatever so then John and Mary talk they're getting to know each other and I put in my notes John is kind of charming question mark like he is like he is okay is he your type he's not my type but he's some people's type he's some people's type Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit, but hey, uh, hey, hey, come on, Pickens and you agree, so there you go. Hey, yes. listen, okay, <laughs> I knew I knew my boy Pickens. Sorry, right, listen, although he'll 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 think anything with like two legs is fine, but whatever. Shout out Pickens, I love you. Um, but anyway, so no, it's it's all good, but no, I mean like he's just like a guy, and you know, yeah sort of kind of charming but anyway he's like you know oh well can i see you again and she's just like you know oh don't you have to go to work she's like no i have the whole day for chopping because that's what you do when you're a woman in the 60s apparently but anyway so (laughs) but she then goes go dress shopping you know she goes out to the local department store and mary is uh trying on a dress and talking to the sales lady about it and blah 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 so then mary is in the dressing room um and it's this weird kind of thing because like she just feels kind of odd. She feels a little off, I guess. That's what it seems like. And she is in the dressing room and she's getting like her dresses back on that she wore in. And she goes out to the sales floor and she is trying to interact with the sales girl um, to say, oh, hey, I like this dress. I'm going to like take it now. But the sales girl doesn't even know she's there. And so you're like, okay, what is this? Like, what the hell? So like, all right, like, sh- why? What? Okay, you're rude. Like, okay, but then like, hey, like, what's what's going on? Like, she's just trying to interact with other people, but she doesn't. She can't interact with anybody because they're not acknowledging her. And she's like, what the fuck is going on here, dude? So she goes through like the whole department store and like the whole like shopping center place, I guess. And she ends up going outside um, and she just like walks down the road because she just is trying like, but nobody seems to like talk to her. And she's just like, what in the fuck? Like, what is this? Uh, So she ends up going to the park um, and she just like walks to the park apparently. And she has her purse with her and everything. And she, I think what happens is that she takes a drink of water from like a water fountain or something and then she sees this like figure well she's awakened by the bird noise she's awakened by the bird noise the silence that she had been experiencing is broken by this chirping of a bird and then 
she goes to take a drink of water and there's a figure standing yes, next yes, to her. Yes, yes, she gets spooked by that. And so she's like, oh God, like who is this? But then she meets Dr. Samuels and Dr. Samuels is a doctor. We find out he's not a psychiatrist, I don't think. I don't think he is. Who is, he is not a psychiatrist. He, no, he is says not a psychiatrist. Uh, but he's just like, he's like, he meets her and he's like, oh, hey, like, come with me. Like, you know, I'll help you kind of talk out whatever you were talking about. So Mary goes to his office and she's talking to, she's talking to him about what she, I consider it an episode of non-existence, I guess I'll say. Like, she's having this episode of like, the the outside yeah. world is not interacting with her and she's and she's experiencing that and she's just talking about what it felt like for that and i don't know if this could then be an allegory for like well we find out so i also say in my notes mary and dr samuels argue but the reason they're arguing is because he's trying to say that this is because of a significant trauma that she just witnessed just had happened to her when you know she fell in the fucking river with her friends and so that is a manifestation of the trauma that she was dealing with but but he also says he also tries to pin it on did you have you know a yeah. father figure or a man in your life kind of thing so that to me kind of it does, cancels it does. itself and then also out. yeah it's just like her talking about like you know i don't really have like a a need for people you know the contact for people or whatever which i think is in lana del rey's song um but anyway so like you know yeah, it's just them kind of going back and forth. I know you can't see me, but it's fine. But anyway, no, it's that's fine. No, it's fine. I'm I'm convinced Lana Del Rey oh, has completely. seen She's uh, watched it Carnival before, Souls. Now. But anyway, so yeah, I um, yeah, they just kind of go back and forth or whatever, and she's just like, okay, like you know, whatever, dude. Thanks for talking to me, I guess. But like, yeah, whatever. You don't know what you're talking about, which he doesn't. He's not a psychiatrist. But anyway, so and she's just like kind of not really into psychiatry anyway she doesn't really want to talk about how she feels like she's just like no i'm just keeping it moving whatever so then i have my notes i have uh mary decides to go out to the pavilion to investigate and what this means to me is that at some point after she leaves the doctor's office she then goes home i guess and she we don't see her go home we just see her driving out because she talks about this place to dr samuels and she's just like well i guess i'll go out there so she just goes out to this place the pavilion and she investigates so what that means is that she is just there to walk around the pavilion and she sees all of the stuff there which some of it is kind of carnival stuff hence the title carnival souls but like you know it's just she's walking around this place uh, and the outside of it, and it's just really – I think we already talked about it, but, like, this is where we're seeing how atmospheric this movie is and just how melancholy it is, you know, and a sense of melancholy it has where, you know, it's just these shots of, of Candace Hillegas just, like, walking around and, like, yeah, they're just so striking to watch and you're just like, oh, my God, like, this is all done on location, too. Like, this is all real stuff, so – yeah, she sees all that. Yeah, yeah. And how vast it is, and you're right, yeah, how isolated totally, she totally. is with all And of then it. also, yeah, yeah it's, it just goes into that. Uh, when they're talking with Dr. Samuels, you know, I don't know if there's that... I get the feeling that, yeah, she was been through trauma, but, like, she's also maybe kind of a just... I don't know, like, she may have a little bit of a depressive episode kind of here and there, but, like, overall, she's not, like, super sad, I guess. Like, whatever. Like, she just... 
she has a normal level of depression, maybe <laughs> that a normal person would have, or a person yeah. who doesn't deal yeah. with severe depression. But like, yeah. yeah, she's just not affected by the world a ton, I guess. Mary then enters a building. She goes into a building, the pavilion, I guess, and she finds this huge dance hall. And so she just looks up at it and she's just like looking around. Then we have a, it's not split second, but it's like a few second shot of a ghoul in a tub. <laughs> so he's just like under the water. Right. Her car being in a tub. tub. Yeah. And then uh-huh. Mary then comes back home after looking at this. Cause again, she told her boss, she wants to go see this place. And she finally did. Uh, Cause she's just so interested in it. She's just so drawn to it. So John comes uh, home with her as well, and they, like, come at the same time, uh, and they John wants to go on a date with her. And he asks her, like, hey, you, I, I'll take you out. Like, we should go out sometime. But she declines with him um, to go out. And he's like, hey, I want to ask you something. Like, are you afraid of men? Like, you know, and she's just like, no, not really. Like, but then he's like, hey, well, you know, um, I think it'd be better for me to pick you up. From, you know, if you're going to get the press tonight, like, because she says, oh, I have to go to the church tonight to go practice and whatever. And she's just like, he's like, well, it'd be better, you know, you walking with me than you walking home by yourself. She's like, okay, that's fair. All right, well, come on, pick me up then and meet me after I'm done practicing, pretty much. And he's like, all right, you got it, girl. She goes to, uh, <laughs> she goes to church. She goes to practice at the church. And she is just playing this beautiful, spooky music because she initially is doing her regular, just like, you know, religious ass, like, you know, organ music or whatever. But then she's playing this like really spooky, beautiful music that's happening. Yeah, she is. She her hands are possessed by something that makes her uh, play this this um Exactly, what would become exactly. unorthodox. And this is where we get the surrealism of this because we hear this score throughout and then we're now into Mary being into like a creepy nightmare pretty much where like uh, she's at the pavilion she was just at and the ghouls are like beckoning to her. So this is where we see the ghouls coming up from the water and like they're just beckoning to her and she's just watching them and the ghouls dance around. You know, so again, this is where uh, Herc Hervey just wanted that in his movie. Everything else was written around it. But uh, yeah, they, they dance around while the organ plays. And Mary just starts to look really frightened. She just like is watching these ghouls dance and she just looks scared. She's just like, oh, oh God, oh God. But then we're back. So again, this it's that weird. And it goes on for like a, a few minutes, really, like that whole scene. Um, and then... It is a long sequence. Yeah, it's a long and then sequence. It's like yeah. so that's surreal. That's the nightmare part of this. This is like that weird surrealism. But then we're back in the church, and the priest finds Mary, which I says playing sacrilegious music, which it's unorthodox, if you will. Yes, and he fires her ass. No, he profane. does say that he goes profane, yes. blasphemy, Yeah, and so he fires her. How ass, dare which you? Is just like, yeah. and he says like it's not because. I don't want you to turn your back on the church, but you know, all that. And she just like takes her book and walks down the stairs. Doesn't even talk to him. But also, like he's a fucking dick. He's such, it's such a cop out. He goes, I, I just don't like what you do, but I don't think you're, you it should really be stupid. here. And it's and yeah. So like stupid. what else is she supposed so to do stupid. there? She moved for this job yeah. and now she's fired. What the fuck? But anyway, so she leaves there and John is outside to pick her up. And so he doesn't know anything about this. She doesn't mention it to him or anything. But, you know, from what I gather. 
But again, they're just walking, you know, walking, walking. So they're going to, uh, John takes Mary out to a local, like, uh, place, like a local little dance hall thing with a little jukebox and they're having drink and stuff. You know, she's not really drinking, but he is. I also low key think that, like, he's kind of an alcoholic, maybe <laughs> a little bit. He tries to say he's not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He's just like, I like a drink here and there because he starts off his day when they were talking before with a little bit of alcohol. Uh, but he definitely kind of is. Yeah. He starts at like yeah. at in like my, nine a.m. He is starts John drinking. An alcoholic? So. And I'm like, yes, yes, he is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he takes her out, but now he's just kind of being a dick to her because he's pretty much calling her cold. She's calling her frigid. I think he even mentions that she's frigid. Like somebody calls her frigid. Yeah, yeah he calls. He which calls is just her really frigid. rude. Yeah, he and does. I think is like, oh my god, mm-hmm. I would have punched him. Um, oh, I have that in my notes too. So wait. Uh, so John meets a friend of his, Chip. Um, and Chip is like interested in Mary, and he's like, don't go for her. Like that's that's my girl. Like don't go for her. It's like okay, whatever. So then. Um, so John and Mary talk and John kind of mentions like, Oh yeah, he's a college friend of mine. And he was talking to me about like how you're not interested or like, how you don't seem that interested to be here with me. And Oh, that's what he says. He says, John tells Mary to thaw out, thaw out. Really? But he calls thaw her friend. Pretty that's much. right. That's right. Yes. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Cause he goes, why don't you thaw out? Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. So, as we were already saying, like, fucking, like, uh, John tells her to thaw out, which is her being called a frigid bitch, pretty much, <laughs> which is just rude. So John and Mary go back. They leave and go home because they live in the same place. John calls her a frigid bitch, pretty much. And that's really rude. <laughs> and I hate that. Uh, but they go back home because they do live in the same place, obviously. And so um, Mary comes back up to her room and John is being a perv uh, because he's like, oh, you want to go in that room like by yourself or whatever? It's all dark. She's just like, yeah, I think I'll manage. But OK, bye. Like, you know, again, she's just like not into this at all. And, and again, it just kind of shows that like she was doing this with john she was trying to make that work but then that didn't really end up going anywhere and so she sees uh she goes in her room and then she sees the ghoul in there and john and she freaks out because like she's seeing him but she's but john is not seeing anything so he's just like okay you're a wackadoo apparently and uh i we're we're not gonna work like this i i'm gonna like just run off pretty much and so in this point she then breaks down so i think at this point she's literally like all right like i don't have a job here i don't have a guy here okay whatever i guess i'm just gonna pack all my stuff up so she packs up her things in a suitcase or two i think it was a suitcase and she leaves so mary drives to her garage um so she's like on her way driving and her car is squeaking. So like she drives and she is, she drives to this garage and she sees the attendant there. So he's like, put it up on the lift. And she was like, can I just sit here pretty much? And he's just like, that's fine. That's up to you. So she goes up on the lift in her car and all of this. And so then we see that the attendant is like somewhere else. I don't know where he went, but then the spooky figure some spooky figure, we don't actually see who it is, um, comes into the garage and she like somehow falls out of her car, I guess is what happened. Or is pulled um, or is pulled or is pulled. 
Oh, yes, true. And uh, then goes running. So she is just like, oh, my God, fuck this. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then this is another one of her episodes she's having of non-existence. So this is like her... She runs into the bus station, um, but nobody's acknowledging her. And she's just trying to, like, find some help, pretty much. And so, like, she's running. She runs onto the um, the bus platforms where, like, the buses are. And she's just, like, trying to run and run. And then I say in my notes, Mary runs to the ghoul bus because that's literally what it is. She runs onto a bus that has all these ghouls. And it's just like, oh, God. And then she's running away. So, you know... Um, well, yeah, she's, cool she bus. hears she hears an announcement. Uh, no one behind the counter acknowledges her, and so she hears this weird, mysterious reverb uh, announcement. And so she goes onto the bus and finds all of these ghouls there uh, waiting for her, supposedly. So she runs right off of it. Yeah. So yeah, you have these people running out. Um, you got people running off the ghoul bus. <laughs> it's just creepy. But then Mary runs back to Dr. Samuels's place. Um, and so she's there and you see his chair is like turned around or whatever. And she's just talking to him and talking to him about whatever. But then you find out it's the ghoul bitch is what I have in my nose. Uh, so it's not Dr. Samuels. It's literally the ghoul, um, which has a different part, which has a different like view of it now knowing that her Harvey was not the nicest to her on set which is just really crazy but anyway she then you find that it's actually just a dream all the time because it's very much like the third wall breaking where she just screams to the camera um and so then mary like drives and she drives out of the garage she's like fuck this i'm gone so then she drives back to the pavilion so she's walking and she walks through the pavilion. She walks back into that building and she looks out at the mountains. She's just looking out there and, you know, just doing what she could. And so now we're getting to near the end of the film and the ghouls uh, come out of the water as they did in her nightmare beforehand and they start to slow dance again. And now you're noticing like Mary's off to the side, but actually she's in with the ghouls kind of because I felt like the main ghoul is dancing with somebody who looks a lot like Mary, but who's a ghoul or whatever. Yeah. And so we don't, like, we don't see, we don't see who he's dancing with in the first yeah. dance scene, but then this yeah. time around it zooms in and it's her. Yeah, exactly. So then we're like, Oh, okay. So then Mary screams uh, again. She's just like, Oh my God. And the ghouls are now chasing her. Uh, so the ghouls chase her and everything. Um, and this is that scene where, like, I think some of it was cut out. Uh, and also one of the fun things I mentioned to you, Jackson, was, like, um, you can see at this point in the film, because this was done on film, like, you can see, like, the film kind of bubbling a little bit during this time. Because uh, it's, like, dark and, you know, all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. You're well, and, and he does some really interesting things. Like, there's some pretty intricate editing tricks he does like speeding up it sounds so basic but you know the fact that he's speeding up film and he's also shooting scenes in real time where you know somebody uh, he just uses space in such a great way where like somebody pops out of it out of this you know dark shadow from around the bed uh, like around the corner and it's it's brilliant yeah he uses all of that and the bubbling of the film yeah makes it look um 
almost kind of documentarian a little bit. Like yeah, it does. you're like, oh shit, this is actually happening. <laughs> yeah, no, and they chase her pretty much, and they catch up with her, and and then it's just like really creepy, and we don't know what they do with her really. Uh, they, I don't know if they kill her. I guess like I don't know. They just catch up to her, and they just like are like whatever, right? Um, so then yeah. we have that scene. It's like really creepy. Uh, and then the cops and the priest come to the pavilion because I guess they're like, well, Mary just kind of disappeared out of town. We don't know what happened to her. So, like, now we got to, like, figure out what's going on with her. And we're like, okay, cool, I guess. Um, and so, but we, they see that, like, her footsteps stop at a point, um, which is the point where, like, the ghouls caught up with her. And so they're just trying to investigate her disappearance. But, like, they're just like, okay, well, I don't know where she went. Like, all right, well, whatever. We'll shrug it off, I guess. Because yeah. that's really what they do. What's really, well, what's really cool about that scene is, like, you you get this sense when you watch it that, mm-hmm. not that they're in on it, but you're kind of, like, they don't question yeah. it. They're, they just kind of accept it. So that's yeah. what I love about it. It's so subtle, uh, what Herc Harvey does, but it's just this, like, the priest and the policeman, like, they don't ask any questions. They just, like, look at each other. And it's almost yeah. this acceptance that like something happened here, but we're not going to talk about it. So it's a, br- yeah, yeah, it's a brilliant way. It's a brilliant, weird question mark to end on. Yeah. It's a weird question mark to end on. Like you were saying. And so we're coming up on the end of the movie and we are back in Kansas. And pretty much what happens is the police in Kansas are back at the river from the beginning. And they are, I guess, starting to fish out the car from earlier. And so then we find out uh, in a twist ending of, of all sorts that Mary has actually been in this car with her friends the whole time, question mark. Like she's pretty much been dead the whole time, I guess. Or maybe it was like, like the ghouls that just caught up with her, like put her into the car again. I don't know. Uh, I tend to think of it as um, she's been dead this whole time. And then this whole movie has just been kind of like a, I don't know, like a manifestation of something to her or her last moments or what she wanted her life to be or something like that. But yeah, we end in that way of she's been dead the whole time. And this is what we've seen. And then that's the end of Carnival of Souls. So in regards to this particular film of Carnival of Souls, you know, I personally would say, you know, I mean, it's so influential to the horror genre. I mean, it just everything about it. It's so atmospheric. Mm -hmm. It is so uh, just has a level of melancholy and dread in a way, you know, that I just think is, is fabulous for this. I mean, it's definitely one of the first psychological horror films ever. You know, and it it is just something where I'm like, I don't want to be a gatekeeper or anything to the horror community. But I mean, if you haven't seen Carnival of Souls, like you need to get on that. I mean, what are you doing? Like you need to because no excuse, no excuse, no No excuse excuse at all, like at all. And I mean, it's so readily accessible as well. You know, it's on YouTube. It's on Shutter, It's on Tubi. Like there's so many ways you can watch it. Like there's no reason to not watch it, which is, you know, just the big thing for me. Uh, I will say, I did want to ask you before. So, mm-hmm. uh, this is a movie that, you know, is from 1960. They did make a 1990 something remake Ugh. that happened. Um, have you seen I it? Know. I haven't. No, I did have to do research on it for the book. Um, John Carpenter 
put his was John Carpenter or Wes Craven one of them I think John Carpenter put or no Wes Craven Wes Craven put his name on as a producer but I don't but he was he wasn't involved in any of it yeah so uh no it has nothing to do with this movie um in fact there's a foreign film I forget the name of it at the moment but there's actually a foreign film that's more inspired by it it's the name of um a woman but um but the carnival of souls remake no is terrible and actually pretty bad from the synopsis that i read um you know, oh yeah like, like it's just yeah woman's like assaulted by a clown and then there's trauma later so like it's just weird it's mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's just a title at that point you know might as well make it a comic book series at that point like literally you might as well literally. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it, and I have no plans to see it ever. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. You did mention a little bit earlier, though, because we did talk about how Lana Del Rey has definitely seen this movie. Uh, you said about a remake. I mean, not that I would yeah. want this to be remade. It doesn't need to be right. However, right, uh, we're gonna play a little wrap up game, just a little bit. Oh yes, uh, yes because. Okay. I want to know, you already kind of said who you would want to play Mary, but if you could have like a little dream cast of Carnival of Souls that could be remade, who would you want to be in that movie? Well, I said Florence Pugh, I think would be great. Um, or mm-hmm. Saoirse would be really Ooh, yes. good at Mary. That, yeah. I think Saoirse would be a really good Mary. I think it would be great to see like Emma Thompson as Mrs. Thomas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get with that. Um, yeah, we don't Andrew need a Gar- creep like that, but we need somebody who's like a real good actor. No, I think I think Emma Thompson, um, uh, Andrew Garfield as Mr. Linden would be really fun. Yeah, yeah, I can it would be really good for the. Oh, I love uh, what's his name, uh, Skarsgård for the man. Ooh, um, okay. A Bill uh, Skarsgård? Either Bill Skarsgård or Alex Skarsgård or Pete, uh, the the other Big Little Lies Skarsgård. Um, <laughs> the Big Little Lies part. I will go with that. The Big yeah. Little Lies one. Like, one of the Skarsgård boys needs to be the man. And then, oh God, the men are so interchangeable. They're terrible. Yes. So it could be anybody. Actually, what would be really interesting, what would I really like is... Kind of like um, that movie Men that came out a few okay. um, like a year ago, but like have Andrew Garfield play all the male parts except the ghoul. So like Andrew Garfield <laughs> plays the priest in old makeup, and Andrew Garfield plays the factory manager in like yeah, a fat yeah. suit, and then you know plays Mister Linden. Like it would be really interesting to have him. I'm like, not opposed to that actually. That's kind of yeah because yeah, they are so interchangeable. You're what so about? What about you? What about you? Girl. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ooh. Lana Del Rey, obviously, obviously. is Mary yeah, She could do the score. <laughs> I think she could do the score for yeah, That would be good. Just Somebody one. Music. Kind of no. love songs. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. Like um, I would love yes. that. No, I'm trying to think. I mean, you got some good ones. I think, uh, ooh, girl. I don't even know. I mean, like, listen, it's because I love these people. I think Tony Collette could be a fabulous uh-huh. uh, Mrs. Thomas. She'd be kind of fun. Oh, she'd um, be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, she'd be yeah. great. Uh, I'm going to go with you on Bill Skarsgård doing his barbarian thing and being Mr. Linden. I think that'd be yeah. actually. Yeah. Oh, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that'd be actually vibes, really yeah. good. I think, yeah, yeah I'm that actually figures. would be great. And then the main actress, I mean, ooh. I, mm, to be honest with you, 
Because I want to see a... Actually, actually, Sydney, Sydney Sweeney would be good. Ooh, she yeah. would be a good Mary Henry. Sydney Ooh, Sweeney. True. Yeah, she would be really good. I would also Yeah, and she's on the see... up and up. Or... Yeah. Uh, maybe it's because I love her so much. I kind of want to see a, yeah. uh, a non-white Mary. I would be down for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Of I'm course. trying to think of a good actress of color. Yeah. I mean, my mind goes to Jasmine Savoy Brown because I think she, uh, she's very strong. Yeah, she'd be too. Great. I want she'd her be to, great. she has to be very vulnerable, yeah, but I think she can do that. I need the girls in Yellow Jackets, maybe any of them. I'm a Yellow Jackets fan. So, but you know, uh, <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, no, like somebody yeah. who like is an up and comer kind of person, but I want her to, I would love to yep. see a non white portrayal of her i really would i would love to see yeah that would be good that would be good i would love that um hell give the girl from barbarian a chance i don't know like you know put her and bill scar star together yeah she was great she yeah she'd be fantastic yeah that would be a great reunion you just need somebody yeah i love that idea yeah you need a lady who can be vulnerable because she does have this emotional vulnerability but then also is kind of strong-willed and I think, like I said, right. anybody who mm-hmm. can play that, which yeah. generally these Hollywood actresses hopefully can do that, um, you know, otherwise yeah. they don't have much mm-hmm. careers. Uh, yeah, I just think like it would be it would be fantastic. And you know, I said Night of the yeah. Night of the Comet doesn't really need a remake. I don't think it does, but I wouldn't mind a remake of this. <laughs> uh, maybe I would love I would love a remake of that. Yeah, especially with the yeah, especially with the stars of today. So like the Sydney Sweeney's, the Austin Butlers. Like it would be really good to see all of those people remake that, especially. Yeah, I totally agree. Let's not put Ari Aster into it. We're not, we don't need it. Doesn't need to get that weird. Okay. Oh no 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 no. We don't want to ruin it. Come look, on. Look. Yeah. Oh no. God! I, let's get I, let's get Sam Raimi back to remake uh, Night of the Comet. I think that would be really good. Oh actually. actually, seriously, seriously, our uh, a Sam Raimi remake of a uh, uh, Night of the Comet that actually might be good. Hmm. I was saying that I didn't want to remake, but you might just turn me on, and I don't know. Anyway, uh, I but think, I think Sam Raimi would do a good job. I think he would too, actually. Uh, but. Jackson, I yeah. just want to thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show today. Thank I you. really appreciate it. Uh, we've had some technical difficulties, so which is fine. It's okay. Uh, but, you know, I think, it's if fine. anything, I love finding other people who love movies just as much as I do and who are also cult heads as well with this kind of cinema. And I'm just yes. really, I'm happy to to have anybody on my show who loves this stuff just as much as I do. So I'm very happy to have had you oh, on. Yeah. And I know that this episode is, I think it'd be great. It's been awesome because, you know, we're getting to talk about movies that some people don't always know about. And I really like that. So yeah, I'm so happy that you came on. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I had a great you wanna, time. Thank you. Want you want people to Can't follow to you and back. stalk you yeah. on social media if you want? You can plug yeah, stuff. follow me on follow me on Instagram. Yeah, follow me on Instagram, jackson.cooper.arts. Uh, I post a lot about movies and my own stuff. So, yes, and be on the lookout for I'm working on a book right now on um, nice. bizarre noir movies, so weird noir movies, um, so like the cult and bottom of the barrel noir movies. So I'm working on that right now. And yes, I will be. Yeah, that's it. That's it. 
I love it. And well, hopefully, so I'm not found dead in my. I'm, hopefully, I'm not found dead in my New York apartment by the time people hear this. So yes, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, you're hopefully not like yeah. Dorian Corey, I guess. Like we're hoping not. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm not a, a mummified corpse in a in a closet by then. But yes, follow mm-hmm. me on Instagram. Um, yes. All right. Thank you so much, Jackson. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show, and hope you have a good rest of your night. Okay. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on Instagram at cultcinemacircle and on Twitter at cultcinemacircle. I tend to announce the movies that I'm going to be covering and just interact with people on there if they want. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On that platform, I tend to log the movies that I watch, I write little stupid reviews about them, and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 2001's Legally Blonde. Elle Woods, a fashionable sorority queen, is dumped by her boyfriend. She decides to follow him to law school. While she is there, she figures out there is more to her than just her looks. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, I don't belong in the world. That's what it is. Something separates me from other people. Take care. Bye.